kind of dumb. I never worked on anything harder, though, so don't laugh at me. Remember, we went to the restaurant that first night and you ordered chicken parmesan, so I drew you a plate. Um, there's the chicken, the cheese, and the linguine. That actually took me a long time with the squigglies. It's beautiful. There's the Pullman side for you. to breathe feels like floating so full of love my heart's exploding mouth is dry hands are shaking my heart is yours for the taking acting weird not myself dancing around like the Kepler elf that's funny Finally time for this poor schlub to know how it feels to fall in love. Couldn't think of anything else that rhymes with schlub. Rub, tub, and work. Wow. <laughs> All right. So there you go. We're starting off the service, starting off the bridge with a bit of a love story, which is very appropriate for today as we continue the Banner Year series. We're going to drop into a section of scripture, actually a book of the Bible that really is all about love and a love story. So I'm excited to get here. We're going to go there in just a minute. I'm going to pray one more time and then we're going to dive into Song of Solomon chapter 2. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for this, this gathering of your people. I pray, Father, that your spirit would be right here in the midst of us. I pray, God, that you would speak very boldly to right where we are. I pray, God, that as a result of our taking in your word and hearing your word, that you might change us, that you might transform us, that you might work deep within our souls and prepare us, Father, for love. Prepare us for what that means between each and every one of us. And bless us during this time, in Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, so like I said, we're continuing the Banner Year series. And this will actually be our second time to dive into the book of Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. So here's a little bit of a disclaimer. We're going to dive in a little bit heavy today. Um, and it may make you slightly uncomfortable. I've even had to ask the deacons if they would crank down the AC a bit because it could get slightly warm in here. Um, so hang with me. If it gets to be a bit much to you... Um, you're still not excused. You got to hang through it, through the discomfort. Amen? Amen. So, Adam Sandler in that clip, maybe you recognize it, a 2002 film called Mr. Deeds. He writes this cute little poem to his love, attempting to win her affection and her love. And apparently it works because the scene ends with a kiss. A nice kiss. Now, my attempts at poetry would look more like Adam Sandler's. I'm just not a poet. 
My expressions of love to my wife are likely going to be in the form of gifts, and I will make some, some verbal comments, but they won't be very poetic, all right? They will be soft and lovely, you can imagine, but the extent of my poetic, my poetic uh, skills would be more like roses are red, violets are blue, and I like you, or something along those lines, right? That's about the extent of it. But we're in a section of scripture. We're in a section of scripture known as the wisdom books. And when we get to the Song of Solomon, it's categorized in a section known as the poetics. Very poetic, beautiful language that we find in this section of the Bible. And the Song of Solomon fits right into this section known as the poetics. Song of Solomon. It's poetic language and it's love language and it's, it's full of all sorts of love anticipation, which we'll get to in just a few moments. But think back with me a little bit and you're probably like me if you spent a lot of time around the church and in church. Because I remember coming through church and church school and sitting through Sabbath schools and we didn't really read much from the Song of Solomon. Didn't go there. Uh, there was always this sort of air of mystery around the book. People weren't too sure what to do about it. So what we kind of understood about the, the book Song of Solomon is that it was a great allegory about God's love for his people and Christ's love for the church. And that's pretty much where we let it sit. We just didn't go there, right? It's kind of like that. Back in the day, and some of you will relate to this, some of you won't. It's like, kind of like back in the day when you go into the blockbuster video store. And there was the kids section of movies and you kind of had to stay focused there if you were a kid. Don't go to the rated R section or the non-rated section or the kind of off-color B film section because even the covers were kind of scandalous, right? So in our Bibles, when we picked up our Bibles in Sabbath school and stuff, you know, all of us kids kind of wanted to look at the Song of Solomon, you know, get a little peek. But we were a little nervous about going there, and there was, not a, there was not a Sabbath school teacher in sight that would ever go there, right? This is, a, this is an allegory of God's love for you and me, and we're going to leave it at that, right? And for so many, so many of us, that is enough to satisfy our biblical appetite and perhaps even our biblical curiosity. But could it be... That if we dive a little deeper, there's a gold mine and a treasure of wisdom that we might discover in a more literal interpretation of this very provocative book. And it is provocative. On three, say provocative. One, two, three. Y'all are weak sauce. Let's try that again. One, two, three. It is an explicit book. It is a provocative book. It is in fact a very sexy book. On three, everybody say sexy. One, two, three. Y'all are so lame. <laughs> I'm trying to get church people to say sexy. It's awesome. <laughs> it is incredibly sensual. That makes it a bit more difficult to simply write it off as an allegory of God's love for his people. 
Because you and I don't relate to God in that way. So there's some weakness in the argument for the allegory. Because you and I are different. We don't relate to our God in this way. Now, you and I relate to one another in that way. So we are likely to be more faithful to the text by interpreting more literally as a ser- interpreting these words more literally as a series of poetic love messages between a couple who are courting, will marry, and will enjoy one another in sexual intimacy. That's where this book is going. And that's likely where our Sabbath school teachers of the past were a little, that's why they were a little bit nervous about going there because historically church people don't talk about sex. I'm going to see how many times I can say sex in a sermon. That's going <laughs> to make you even more uncomfortable. But that's likely why they didn't go there. Because intuitively, while they bought into the notion of an allegory, intuitively they kind of knew this book is so much more about the reality of desire and beauty and attraction that exists between humans, between you and me, you and your spouse, you and your, your significant other, you and your girlfriend or your boyfriend. There are at least two Mega themes that emerge from this great book, The Song of Solomon. I like to point them out. One, and this is the strongest mega theme that comes out, that is the idea of desire. Desire. Again, a subject that the church doesn't like to touch. Desire. Desire. There's also this mega theme of beauty. Of beauty. And as we, as we dive into some of this in just a minute, um, you'll see that there's, a, there's an overwhelming uh, amount of language about the attractiveness, the physical attractiveness of, of, that happens, of, that, the, that the couple appreciates between one another. They are pointing those things out. Now, they set for themselves one another as their standard of beauty. So what we're, what we're talking about here is not so much saying that uh, beauty is just sort of this thing that, you know, only these people can attain to and that they possess, that there's a certain type of beauty. But what they're saying about one another is that their beauty has become their standard, that they see one another as beautiful. So mega theme of desire, mega theme of beauty. And there's an attractiveness to the beauty. There's an attractiveness to the beauty. So let me say this. Let me interject here. Thank you, God, for the book of the Song of Solomon. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you that you saw to it, God, that that you would put such an explicit, important book in the Bible. Let's not forget, Adventists, the Bible talks about how the word of how how the very word of God is breathed out. All Scripture is God breathed. That includes the Song of Solomon. So it's there for a purpose. It's there for a reason. I happen to believe that it's there to give us some insight, some wisdom, some guidance in the area of love, and attraction, and desire, and yes, sex and sexuality. That's what I think about this book. Often us church people, we sort of major in fluff and pretension. 
But the, the Bible, I'm thankful for Scripture that it, it kind of gets down to the nitty-gritty of things, right? The Bible is extremely relevant if we'll allow God to give it a chance to be relevant to our lives. All right, so let's, let's dive in a little bit more. You could say that um, if you think about another one of the books um, that's, that's sort of categorized in this section of the wisdom literature of the Bible, there's another book called Proverbs. You've likely heard of Proverbs. Um, a lot of us quote from the book of Proverbs, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your past, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. A lot of us quote the book of Proverbs or we turn to Proverbs for these words of instruction. But you can say that the book of Proverbs, you could say that the book of Proverbs is kind of written for the guys, but the book, when it comes to the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs, you could say that that's kind of written for the ladies. In the book of Proverbs, uh, the, the writer Solomon talks about how uh, my son, he talks like he's speaking to, uh, to a young man. And he, and he, in one of the Proverbs there, Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart. So he talks about issues of the heart. He talks about issues of, of, of attraction and desire. And he's trying to guide this young man so that he, so he takes on the right path. So he does the right thing. So he makes the right choices. When it comes to the Song of Solomon, it's kind of written for the ladies. In fact, most of what's written in this book, the Song of Solomon, is from the woman's perspective. And she, she deals very much with her own desire, a sense of her own physical attractiveness, as well as the physical attractiveness of the one that she is attracted to and interested in and ultimately will be with. And she is in love with them and she's dealing with these desires. So, here we go. We get a little bit more insight into this woman. In fact, if you go to Song of Solomon chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, she talks a little bit about her physical appearance. So it gives us a little bit of her backstory and a little bit of a sense of where she comes from. She says this, dark am I, dark am I. She has a darker complexion, complexion because of the sun. Yet lovely, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon, do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. So what we can take from this is that likely she is not someone who is a, um, a queen necessarily, or someone who is of high stature or high status. She is likely just a common woman. She's a regular, everyday, young woman. Because she says she works out in the fields. She is dark because of the sun. There's a good chance she's just sort of a normal, common young lady. Now here, the one that she is in love with, her, her, her lover, if you will, he comes in with his sort of uh, Adam Sandler moment. He begins to talk about her beauty and what she's like. Here's his poetic um, here's where he begins to wax poetic about her. This is Song of Solomon chapter 1 verses 15 through 16. He goes like this. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful, how beautiful you are. Your eyes are doves, he says. 
So he comes in to talk about how beautiful she is. He notices how dark she is, but to him, she is dark and lovely and beautiful. She responds. She says this in verse 16, how handsome you are, my beloved, and how charming you are. And our bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars, our rafters are firs. So here's the first sort of lesson that we can take from these words in the Song of Solomon. And I'll ask it, I'll ask it to you this way. How's your, how's your love language? How's your poetry to the one that you love and you care about? Do you use your words in such a way to express that, in fact, your significant other is beautiful? Do you say that to them? I know what holiday just passed. And I know you likely said it in one form or another there. You wrote it in a card. You, maybe you said the words and you likely uttered the words, I love you. That's important, of course. But do you spend time talking about how beautiful your significant other is? Do you talk about how handsome he is, ladies? Do you tell him that often? Sometimes we downplay the value of our words. And oftentimes we're very quick to use our words to criticize and to say what we don't like about that significant other. But do we use those words to say you are really, really beautiful. You are absolutely a handsome dude. Hmm. Do we use our words? How's your love language? How's your poetry? How are you doing in that regard? Let's keep going. Song of Solomon chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. Now we begin to get to uh, a little bit more uh, in-depth into how they feel about one another, how they see each other. And what emerges here is something absolutely critical to all significant relationships that we have with those who we are romantically involved with. So Song of Solomon chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. She says this, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. He comes back, like a lily among thorns is my darling, among the young women. And then she says, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade and his fruit is sweet to my taste. So what's she saying to begin with? Well, she says, look, I'm just sort of a normal girl. I'm just sort of a regular common girl. I'm a rose of Sharon. A rose uh, is is just sort of, in, in Sharon, she's referring to sort of the common lily that would grow in Sharon, it was just every day. You would see it anywhere. And it was just, they were everywhere. It was just a common flower, just a normal, regular flower. But he doesn't let her stay there because he says, like a lily among thorns, like a lily among thorns, she is a rare find compared to everyone else, honey. You, you are amazing. Compared to you, they are all thorns. 
They, they have no attractiveness to, at least in my eyes, he says, I don't even see them. They look like thorns and I run away from thorns. I am exclusively honed in on you and your beauty. You are fine for me. You are awesome to me. You are, the, you, you are the object of my desire. You are my standard of beauty. You are absolutely gorgeous. There's a, there's, there begins to be this sort of notion of, a, of an exclusive devotion. That he is so caught up in her that he cannot focus on anybody else. That everyone else sort of fades into the backdrop. She may think of herself as a wallflower, but for him, she is absolutely the object of his desire. And she doesn't stop either. You kind of see how they go back here, back and forth here. And, and she comes in and she says, if I'm walking along in the forest and all the other trees are just regular forest trees, there's one tree that stands out. It's a tall apple tree and it, it, it is different from everything else. It is a cut above everything else. It is different from the rest. It is unique. It stands out. It is strong and powerful and tall. And that is you. You are one awesome dude. You are handsome. You are special. You stand out. You're not just. And again, I have eyes only for you. You stand out to me. Uh, my, my, my devotion is, is locked in on you. Isn't that awesome? You see, let me, let me make it a little bit more personal for us all. So he has set her as the one that he only has eyes for. We live in a day and age in a culture in which pornography runs rampant. When our eyes have plenty to feast on beyond the person that we are in an exclusive relationship with. And what this dude is saying is that, honey, when I see you, everybody else sort of falls into the backdrop. So I'm not, I'm not lying around. I'm not sitting around fantasizing about some other chick. I'm looking at you. I'm not sitting around. I'm not hanging around on my phone or on the internet checking out porn and all the other options that are out there in the culture and the world. I am looking at you. In fact, I'm, I'm kind of turned off by everybody else. Let me interject this too. That sort of mindset, that kind of transformation in the heart of a guy comes primarily through the work of the Holy Spirit. You don't get to that point without spending a whole lot of time with Jesus, guys. You don't get to that point without really, really coming uh, with, with a great sense of devotion and dedication to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the only way that you arrive at sort of an exclusive love for and having only eyes for one person. That's a Jesus thing. That's a God thing. She reciprocates. I only have eyes for you. I'm not reading romance novels. I'm not watching Fifty Shades of Grey or Fifty Shades Darker, baby. <laughs> I'm looking at you. You stand out to me. Everyone else fades into the backdrop. You matter to me. I see you and I see you and you're enough for me. 
Then there's this section where she talks about how she delights to sit in his shade. Here's a little insight. Here's a really important thing, especially perhaps for the young ladies. Apparently, she understands the value of protection from the sun. Remember the first verses we read, she is darkened by the sun. She apparently has spent a lot of time outside, especially if she's an outdoor worker. But she delights to sit in the shade, in his shade. He is a protector for her. She feels secure in his presence. She feels like this guy has got my back. He's watching over me. He's, he's taking care of me. He is protecting me. I feel secure in his presence. Does your guy help you to feel safe? Ladies, does he help you to feel safe, especially in moments of great temptation, especially when y'all decide to be alone and you knew you shouldn't be alone because you know what happens when y'all get alone. Does, do you feel pressure from him? Do you begin to feel insecure? Do you begin to feel like, hey, this is going to go somewhere that we know it shouldn't go? Or is it the opposite? Do you feel like this guy understands how he needs to protect me, how he needs to watch over me. I'm going to reciprocate. I'm going to protect him. I'm going to do all that I can. But as I sit in his shade, as I am in relationship with him, I feel safe with him, both physically and emotionally. So I do a ton of premarital counseling. Um, I'm doing a couple. I just started with them this week. And they, um, I'm doing them on video, video uh, conferencing. So I do some of this long distance stuff. The first session was this week, and usually in the first session, I have a couple kind of tell me their love story, right? Tell me how you guys got together and why we're going through all this so that someday y'all are going to get married, right? So they tell me the story. The most, probably the most poignant thing that stood out in their story, they told me of an instance where the guy had an opportunity to laugh at his girlfriend. Now, this was early on in the relationship. They're just meeting for the first time. But there's an opportunity in a crowd of other people where she does something kind of silly. He sees it. Everybody sees it. Everybody laughs, but he doesn't laugh. And in fact, he steps in and begins to help her, assist her, walk her through the awkward moment. And she said that stood out to her because he didn't take advantage of an opportunity to make fun of her. Wow. Does your guy take care of you? Does he watch over you? Does he protect you both emotionally and physically? Is he with you? Is he on your side? She feels protected. She feels secure in all of this. Let's keep rolling. Song of Solomon chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. Let him lead me to the banquet hall. Now this, this is where it's going to get really fun. Let him lead me to the banquet hall. Let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. So this banquet hall is literally a house of wines. A house of wines. And you'll remember, if you go back to the very first chapter of the book, we didn't really read it, but if you go back to the very first chapter um, of the book, it says this. It says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Here's a quick, and trust me, I've done the study. Here's a quick take on these passages. This house of wine is essentially, house of wines is essentially a house of kisses. It's a house of kisses. And all the people said, amen. 
Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. He takes me to the banquet hall. He takes me to the, to the, to the house of how, to the house of wines, to the house of kisses. What she's overwhelmed with is the anticipation that she and he will share many, many, many delightful kisses, more delightful than wine. They are anticipating a physical connection. They are anticipating an exclusive, intimate connection with one another. And she is excited about that. So let's not downplay the notion of a woman's desire, people. Come on, church. In the same way that dudes want to kiss, the ladies want to kiss too, y'all. Y'all. <laughs> There is mutual desire on both parts, and she is caught up in this reality. She's anticipating an abundance of kisses. She's anticipating an, uh, the, 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 she's anticipating physical intimacy with the one that she loves. Now, here's the thing that I run to as I talk about this stuff uh, at different places around the country. There's an absence of kisses and sexual intimacy between married folk and obviously between married folk. There just is. People aren't coming into the banquet hall enough. It's like Christmas and somebody's birthday, people. And there should be an abundance of the kisses. There should be a regular coming together of the husband and of the wife. There should be an anticipation of it, but for some reason, that desire sort of gets shut down. For some reason, we kind of lose sight of the value of this exclusive, intimate connection that God has gifted us with to share between a husband and wife, and we downplay it, and, and some, of us, some of us have even bought into the myth that you should never come together on a Sabbath, which is foolishness. Hello. I got a mercy out of somebody. Thank you, Jesus. I got to keep going. So there is this idea that there is going to be an intimacy. It's exclusive. They are with one another. They haven't gotten there yet, but she longs for it. And in fact, she's anticipating it to such a high degree that it's almost intoxicating for her. And she says this, because she hasn't experienced it yet, I'm weak in the knees, so I need some apples and some raisins. Apples and raisins in the ancient world were likely aphrodisiacs. They enhanced desire. They made the anticipation even greater. But this is significant too, because it says there that his banner over me is love. Why does she feel the way that she does? Why is there such overwhelming desire? She has experienced a profound and a potent love and she trusts in that love and she believes in this dude and this dude is acting in such a way that he absolutely loves her. And so she says, his banner over me is love. And again, in the ancient world, as battle lines were drawn, uh, a big banner would go up and it meant to rally the troops, to call all the people together to come under one banner in unity to overcome and overwhelm the force. And what she's saying is, I'm drawn to this dude. 
I'm going to rally around his banner because this love is legit. This is the real thing. I can get behind this and I can get with him. And Lord knows I can't wait to get with him. That's what she's saying. There's enormous desire. But it's based on something substantial. This guy has proven himself, shown himself to be one who loves her, protects her provides security for her, respects her, loves her beauty both inside and outside, values her tremendously, protects her and guides her and takes care of her. And finally, finally, chapter 2, verse 6. Chapter 2, verse 6. Check this out. His left arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me. Now, I'm not going to get real explicit here, but I'm going to hone in on the word embrace. Because literally, in the, he, in, in, in the language of Scripture, the ancient language of Scripture in Hebrew, it brings with it the notion of both an embrace when you greet a friend, but also an embrace when you're involved in sexual intimacy. And what I take from that reality is that, that, that God intends for the lovers to both be friends and lovers. Are you friends with this significant other? Do you actually like each other? Right? Half the time, you got to wonder, do these people really like each other? Because I do a lot of the post-marital counseling too. And people on one opposite end of the sofa in my office, I'm going... This, this is not good. <laughs> and you hear some of the things that people say about one another. and You hear how people treat one another. You begin to wonder, do people actually like each other? Because here's the deal. The loving part, the sex part, usually comes easy. But the relationship part is generally quite difficult. I heard somebody say this this week. That sex is both art and science. It's art and and science. It's science in that, yeah, is what you learn in A&P class or in your, in your school when they taught you science and all the biology of how sex works, right? But there's an art to it in that it takes time for something to become beautiful. That is the relationship. It takes time. It takes attention. It takes focus. It takes, it takes, it takes thoughtfulness. It takes all of those things in order to make something beautiful. That's the relationship part. Most people bypass the relationship part, jump to the physical and to the sexual, thinking that that's going to be the litmus test for how strong the relationship is. Wrong. The relationship will always determine how powerful the sex is. Can I get an amen from somebody? Y'all done just, thank you, Jesus. Woo. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. God intends for our relationships with those significant others. And you have, to, you have to obviously read between the lines here. If you're not married, then that's one thing. But if you are married, you're friends and lovers. If you're not married, you're just friends with a lot of anticipation for what's coming down the road. You got to like each other. She's got to be your ride or die. You got to be together. You got to go on dates. You got to do things. You got to sacrifice for one another. You got to be in it to win it together. 
You got to understand that sexual intimacy is both art and science. You got to understand that sex does not solve problems, people. You got to understand that indeed God wants you to love one another well. Love one another exclusively. Love one another with both emotional and physical intimacy. Is the pastor giving the married folks permission to have more sex? Absolutely. Go into the house of kisses as often as you need to. All right. Hopefully I've generated some emails and some phone calls to the conference office this morning. But I'll end with this. Uh, story of a couple, they got married, uh, been married for a long time. The, um, the wife became somewhat irritated at the guy and she finally confronted him because he never seemed to say, I love you. So she said, look, you, you know, we've been married a long time and, and I love you and I know I, kinda, I express that, I say that all the time, but you never say that you love me very often. And I, I just, I'm kind of put out by that whole notion. And he came back with the comeback that, guys, you don't ever want to you don't ever want to use. And he said, look, honey, I told you I loved you on our wedding day. If that ever changes, I'll let you know. <laughs> All right, that's one way to kill a relationship. Go to the book, The Song of Songs, and read that over and over, guys. And that'll be the way that you find a flourishing, loving, profound relationship of love. Father God, thank you for the gift of the book of The Song of Songs. May we take it to heart. May we seek love. May we follow your example of love, of sacrificial love, and may it lead to deep and meaningful relationships, both emotionally and physically. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.